Chapter Eighteen, Part Eight of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Eighteen: The Kingship in France, Part Eight. There was one heartfelt discomfort which disturbed and troubled sometimes the sweetest moments of his life. Queen Blanche, having got her son married, was jealous of the wife and of the happiness she had conferred upon her, jealous as mother and as queen, a rival for affection and for empire. This sad and hateful feeling hurried her into acts as devoid of dignity as they were of justice and kindness. The harshness of Queen Blanche towards Queen Marguerite, says Joinville, was such that Queen Blanche would not suffer, so far as her power went, that her son should keep his wife's company. Where it was most pleasing to the king and the queen to live was at Pontoise, because the king's chamber was above and the queen's below. And they had so well arranged matters that they held their converse on a spiral staircase which led down from the one chamber to the other. When the ushers saw the queen-mother coming into the chamber of the king her son, they knocked upon the door with their staves, and the king came running into his chamber, so that his mother might find him there. And so in turn did the ushers of Queen Marguerite's chamber, when Queen Blanche came thither, so that she might find Queen Marguerite there. One day the king was with the queen his wife, and she was in great peril of death, for that she had suffered from a child of which she had been delivered. Queen Blanche came in, and took her son by the hand, and said to him, Come you away, you are doing no good here. When Queen Marguerite saw that the queen mother was taking the king away, she said, Alas, neither dead nor alive will you let me see my lord, and thereupon she swooned, and it was thought that she was dead. The king, who thought she was dying, came back, and with great pain she was brought round. Louis gave to his wife consolation and to his mother support. Amongst the noblest lords and in the happiest lives there are wounds which cannot be healed and sorrows which must be borne in silence. When Louis reached his majority, his entrance upon personal exercise of the kingly power produced no change in the conduct of public affairs. There was no vain seeking after innovation on purpose to mark the accession of a new master, and no reaction in the deeds and words of the sovereign or in the choice and treatment of his advisers. The kingship of the son was a continuance of the mother's government. Louis persisted in struggling for the preponderance of the crown against the great vassals, succeeding in taming Peter Mucklerk, the turbulent Count of Brittany, wrung from Theobald IV, Count of Champagne, the rights of suzerainty in the countships of Chartres, Blois, and Sancerre, and the Viscountship of Chateaudun, and purchased the fertile Countship of Macon from its possessor. It was almost always by pacific procedure, by negotiations ably conducted, and conventions faithfully executed, that he accomplished these increments of the kingly domain, and when he made war on any of the great vassals, he engaged therein only on their provocation, to maintain the right or honour of his crown, and he used victory with as much moderation as he had shown before entering upon the struggle. In 1241 he was at Poitiers, where his brother Alfonso, the new Count of Poitou, was to receive in his presence the homage of the neighbouring lords whose suzerain he was. A confidential letter arrived, addressed not to Louis himself but to Queen Blanche, whom many faithful subjects continued to regard as the real regent of the kingdom, and who probably continued also to have her own private agents. An inhabitant of Rochelle, at any rate, wrote to inform the queen-mother that a great plot was being hatched amongst certain powerful lords, of La Marche, 
San Tong, Anguimois, and perhaps others, to decline doing homage to the new Count of Poitou, and thus enter into rebellion against the king himself. The news was true, and was given with circumstantial detail. Hugh to Lusignan, Count of La Marche, and the most considerable amongst the vassals of the Count of Poitiers, was, if not the prime mover, at any rate the principal performer in the plot. His wife, Joan, Isabel of Angoulême, widow of the late King of England, John Lackland, and mother of the reigning king, Henry III, was indignant at the notion of becoming a vassal of a prince himself a vassal to the King of France, and so seeing herself, herself but lately a queen, and now a king's widow and a king's mother, degraded in France to a rank below that of the Countess of Poitiers. When her husband, the Count of La Marche, went and rejoined her at Angoulême, he found her giving away alternately to anger and tears, tears and anger. "'Saw you not,' said she, at Poitiers, where I waited three days to please your king and his queen, how that when I appeared before them in their chamber, the king was seated on one side of the bed, and the queen with the countess of Chartres and her sister, the abbess, on the other. They did not call me or bid me sit with them, and that purposely, in order to make me vile in the eyes of so many folk. And neither at my coming nor in my going did they rise just a little from their seats, rendering me vile as you did see yourself. I cannot speak of it for grief and shame, and it will be my death, far more even than the loss of our land which they have unworthily wrested from us unless by God's grace they do repent them, and I see them in their turn reduced to desolation, and losing somewhat of their own lands. As for me, either I will lose all I have for that end, or I will perish in the attempt. Queen Blanche's correspondent added, The Count of La Marche, whose kindness you know, seeing the Countess in tears, said to her, Madam, give your commands. I will do all I can, be assured of that. Else, said she, you shall not come near my person, and I will never see you more. Then the Count declared with many curses that he would do what his wife desired. And he was as good as his word. That same year, 1241, at the end of autumn, the new Count of Poitiers, who was holding his court for the first time, did not fail to bid to his feasts all the nobility of his appanage, and amongst the very first the Count and Countess of La Marche. They repaired to Poitiers, but four days before Christmas, when the court of Count Alfonso had received all its guests, the Count of La Marche, mounted on his war-horse, with his wife on the crupper behind him, and escorted by his men-at-arms also mounted, cross-bow in hand and in readiness for battle, was seen advancing to the prince's presence. Every one was on the tiptoe of expectation as to what would come next. Then the Count of La Marche addressed himself in a loud voice to the Count of Poitiers, saying, I might have thought, in a moment of forgetfulness and weakness, to render thee homage, but now I swear to thee with a resolute heart, that I will never be thy liegeman, Thou dost unjustly dub thyself my lord. Thou didst shamefully filch this countship from my stepson, Earl Richard, whilst he was faithfully fighting for God in the Holy Land, and was delivering our captives by his discretion and his compassion. After this insolent declaration, the Count of La Marche violently thrust aside, by means of his men-at-arms, all those who barred his passage, hasted, by way of a parting insult, to fire the lodging appointed for him by Count Alfonso, and followed by his people, left Poitiers at a gallop. Histoire de Saint-Louis, by M. Félix Farr, page 347. This meant war, and it burst out at the commencement of the following spring. It found Louis equally well prepared for it, and determined to carry it through. But in him prudence and justice were as little to seek as resolution. He respected public opinion, and he wished to have the approval of those whom he called upon to commit themselves 
for him and with him. He summoned the crown's vassals to a parliament, and what think you, he asked them, should be done to a vassal who would fain hold land without owning a lord, and who goeth against the fealty and homage due from him and his predecessors? The answer was that the lord ought in that case to take back the fife as his own property. As my name is Louis, said the king, the Comte of La Marche doth claim to hold land in such wise, land which hath been a fife of France since the days of the valiant King Clovis, who won all Aquitaine from King Alaric, a pagan without faith or creed, and all the country to the Pyrenean Mount. And the barons promised their king their energetic cooperation. The war was pushed on zealously by both sides. Henry the Third, King of England, sent to Louis messengers charged to declare to him that his reason for breaking the truce concluded between them was, that he regarded it as his duty towards his stepfather, the Count of La Marche, to defend him by arms. Louis answered that, for his part, he had scrupulously observed the truce, and had no idea of breaking it, but he considered that he had a perfect right to punish a rebellious vassal. In this young king of France, this docile son of an able mother, none knew what a hero there was, until he revealed himself on a sudden. Near two towns of Santong, Tilbourg and Sant, at a bridge which covered the approaches of one and in front of the walls of the other, Louis, on the 21st and 22nd of July, delivered two battles, in which the brilliancy of his personal valour and the affectionate enthusiasm he excited in his troops secured victory and the surrender of the two places. At sight of the numerous banners, above which rose the oriflamme, close to Talbourg, and of such a multitude of tents, one pressing against another and forming, as it were, a large and populous city, the King of England turned sharply to the Count of La Marche, saying, My father, is this what you did promise me? Is yonder the numerous chivalry that you did engage to raise for me, when you said that all I should have to do would be to get money together? That did I never say, answered the Count. Yea, verily, rejoined Richard, Earl of Cornwall, brother of Henry the Third. For yonder I have amongst my baggage writing of your own to such purport. And when the Count of La Marche energetically denied that he had ever signed or sent such writing, Henry the Third reminded him bitterly of the messages he had sent to England, and of his urgent exhortations to war. It was never done with my consent, cried the Count of La Marche, with an oath. Put the blame of it upon your mother, who is my wife, for by the gullet of God it was all devised without my knowledge." It was not Henry the Third alone who was disgusted with the war in which his mother had involved him. The majority of the English lords who had accompanied him left him, and asked the King of France for permission to pass through his kingdom on their way home. There were those who would have dissuaded Louis from compliance, but let them go, said he, I would ask nothing better than that all my foes should thus depart forever away from my abode. Those about him made merry over Henry the Third, a refugee at Bordeaux, deserted by the English and plundered by the Gascons. Hold, hold, said Louis, turn him not into ridicule, and make me not hated of him by reason of your banter. His charities and his piety shall exempt him from all contumely. The Count of La Marche lost no time in asking for peace, and Louis granted it with the firmness of a far-seeing politician and the sympathetic feeling of a Christian. He required that the domains he had just wrested from the Count should belong to the Crown, and to the Count of Poitiers, under the suzerainty of the Crown. As for the rest of his lands, the Count of La Marche, his wife and children, were obliged to beg a grant of them at the good pleasure of the king, to whom the count was, further, to give up, as a guarantee for fidelity in future, three castles, in which a royal garrison should be kept at the count's expense. When introduced into the king's presence, the count, his wife and children, with sobs, sighs, and tears, 
threw themselves upon their knees before him, and began to cry aloud, Most gracious sir, forgive us thy wrath and thy displeasure, for we have done wickedly and pridefully towards thee. And the king, seeing the count of La Marche in such humble guise before him, could not restrain his compassion amidst his wrath, but made him rise up, and forgave him graciously all the evil he had wrought against him. A prince who knew so well how to conquer and how to treat the conquered might have been tempted to make an unfair use, alternately, of his victories and of his clemency, and to pursue his advantages beyond measure. But Louis was in very deed a Christian. When war was not either a necessity or a duty, this brave and brilliant knight, from sheer equity and goodness of heart, loved peace rather than war. The successes he had gained in his campaign of 1242 were not for him the first step in an endless career of glory and conquest. He was anxious only to consolidate them whilst securing, in Western Europe, for the dominions of his adversaries, as well as for his own, the benefits of peace. He entered into negotiations successively with the Count of La Marche, the King of England, the Count of Toulouse, the King of Aragon, and the various princes and great feudal lords who had been more or less engaged in the war and in January 1213, says the latest and most enlightened of his biographers, the Treaty of Loris marked the end of feudal troubles for the whole duration of St. Louis's reign. He drew his sword no more, save only against the enemies of the Christian faith and Christian civilization, the Musulman. Histoire de St. Louis by M. Félix Farr, page 388. Nevertheless, there was no lack of opportunities for interfering with a powerful arm amongst the sovereigns his neighbors, and for working their disagreements to the profit of his ambition, had ambition guided his conduct. The great struggle between the empire and the papacy, in the persons of Frederick II, Emperor of Germany, and the two popes, Gregory IX and Innocent IV, was causing violent agitation in Christendom, the two powers setting no bounds to their aspirations of getting the dominion one over the other, and of disposing one of the other's fate. Scarcely had Louis reached his majority when, in 1237, he tried his influence with both sovereigns to induce them to restore peace to the Christian world. He failed, and thenceforth he preserved a scrupulous neutrality towards each. The principles of international law, especially in respect of a government's interference in the contests of its neighbors, whether princes or peoples, were not, in the thirteenth century, systematically discussed and defined as they are nowadays with us, but the good sense and the moral sense of Saint-Louis caused him to adopt, on this point, the proper course, and no temptation, not even that of satisfying his fervent piety, drew him into any departure from it. Distant or friendly, by turns, towards the two adversaries, according as they tried to intimidate him or win him over to them, his permanent care was to get neither the state nor the church of France involved in the struggle between the priesthood and the empire, and to maintain the dignity of his crown and the liberties of his subjects, whilst employing his influence to make prevalent throughout Christendom a policy of justice and peace. That was the policy required in the thirteenth century more than ever, by the most urgent interests of entire Christendom. She was at grips with two most formidable foes and perils. Through the crusades she had, from the end of the eleventh century, become engaged in a deadly struggle against the Mussulmans in Asia, and in the height of this struggle, and from the heart of the same Asia, there spread, towards the middle of the thirteenth century, over eastern Europe, in Russia, Poland, Hungary, Bohemia, and Germany, a barbarous and very nearly pagan people, the Mongol Tartars, sweeping onward like an inundation of blood, ravaging and threatening with complete destruction all the dominions which were penetrated by their hordes. 
The name and description of these barbarians, the fame and dread of their devastations, ran rapidly through the whole of Christian Europe. "'What must we do in this sad plight?' asked Queen Blanche of the king her son. "'We must, my mother,' answered Louis, with sorrowful voice, but not without divine inspiration, adds the chronicler. "'We must be sustained by a heavenly consolation. If these Tartars, as we call them, arrive here, either we will hurl them back to Tartarus, their home, whence they are come, or they shall send us up to heaven.' About the same period, another cause of disquietude and another feature of attraction came to be added to all those which turned the thoughts and impassioned piety of Louis towards the East. The perils of the Latin Empire of Constantinople, founded, as has been already mentioned, in 1204, under the headship of Baldwin, Count of Flanders, were becoming day by day more serious. Greeks, Mussulmans, and Tartars were all pressing and equally hard. In 1236 the emperor, Baldwin II., came to solicit in person the support of the princes of Western Europe, and especially of the young king of France, whose piety and chivalrous ardor were already celebrated everywhere. Baldwin possessed a treasure of great power over the imaginations and convictions of Christians, in the crown of thorns worn by Jesus Christ during his passion. He had already put it in pawn at Venice for a considerable loan advanced to him by the Venetians, and he now offered it to Louis in return for effectual aid in men and money. Louis accepted the proposal with transport. He had been scared, a short time ago, at the chance of losing another precious relic deposited in the Abbey of Saint-Denis, one of the nails which, it was said, had held our Lord's body upon the cross. It had been mislaid one ceremonial day whilst it was being exhibited to the people, and, when he recovered it, I would rather, said Louis, that the best city in my kingdom had been swallowed up in the earth. After having taken all the necessary precautions for avoiding any appearance of a shameful bargain, he obtained the crown of thorns, all expenses included, for eleven thousand livres of Paris, that is to say, about twenty-six thousand dollars of our money. Our century cannot have any fellow-feeling with such ready credulity, which is not required by Christian faith or countenanced by sound criticism, but we can and we ought to comprehend such sentiments in an age when men not only had profound faith in the facts recorded in the Gospels, but could not believe themselves to be looking upon the smallest tangible relic of those facts without experiencing an emotion and a reverence as profound as their faith. It is to such sentiments that we owe one of the most perfect and most charming monuments of the Middle Ages, the Holy Chapel, which Saint-Louis had built between 1245 and 1248, in order to deposit there the precious relics he had collected. The king's piety had full justice and honor done it by the genius of the architect, Peter de Lontreux, who no doubt also shared his faith. End of chapter 18, part 8